Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. This is the place to learn how to get through your worst rock bottom and start to embrace adversity. I'm your host, Petra Belzebor. I'm a therapist and a life coach, but my biggest learning is from my own rock bottom. My story includes being raised in a cult, dealing with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism. But along the way, I've learned to turn my entire life around to one of success, joy, and fulfillment. So in this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life who've done the same. I'll be teasing out the skills and tools necessary, as well as using my own experience to teach you how to turn your adversity into your biggest advantage. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Today, I'm so excited to have invited Oscar Marchok. Have I said that correctly? Yes, um, onto the podcast. Um, we, we worked together several years ago. His story is so inspirational just because he's come from an absolute rock bottom that I completely identify with and has completely turned his life around. So um, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to kind of get your story out there to more people because I think it can inspire so many people. So um, start us off. Give us a, a little bit of context, a little bit of history to, to your family. How did you grow up? Siblings, parents? Um, give us a little snapshot. Okay. Um, well, I was born in uh, 1973, and I'm the oldest child of three to uh, a mum from England, and my dad is a Chinese West Indian uh, mix from Trinidad. So uh, quite unusual at that time. Um, what was that like? Yeah, so, yeah, well, for me, pro- not not such a big deal because I was a kid and I didn't really know any better. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, a difficult time to be in an interracial relationship. My mom was, um, yeah, my mom's just incredibly... Um, pioneering I guess is the word I always sort of comes up with her she's a bit fearless and a bit of an explorer and doesn't really works not to hard not to let things hold her back um but you know to put into context the sort of attitudes towards interracial relationships at that time she was advised by a family member not to have children uh, because it would be too difficult uh, for us growing up as mixed race children um, and throughout my life, I've listened to various people tell me about how they think race mixing is wrong, um, that it just muddies the purity of the races and all that kind of, you know, the usual stuff. Did people um, say that to you as a child? Uh, as an older, sort of like teenage years, yeah. I, I've had a number of heated conversations with other young people about the realities of what they were saying, you know, sort of like directly asking them if they were really suggesting that I shouldn't exist. Right. Uh, so, so, you know, it's a, it's an ongoing theme <laughs> for me, uh, to, to, you know, engage with people who, who may not really understand what it is that they're saying, um, and, and, you know, the uh, reality is is that uh, there is no such thing as a pure race as far as I'm concerned. I don't – everybody's a, an amalgamation of other Absolutely. groups of people through history. And I'm just thinking what must the impact 
of, of that sort of thought pattern been on you growing up? Um, impacts. Um, so, I mean, growing up in Trinidad, it was, um, I was lucky, basically, because the attitude of people in that country is very much that everybody's mixed race, and the idea of purity is kind of a bit ridiculous. So it was normalized. Um, so, yeah, so it, was, it wasn't... Um, so accepting my own racial, uh, multiracial heritage was easy because everybody around me had a multiracial heritage, and that was something we celebrated. Uh, when I came over to the UK that was much more challenging because this whole kind of idea of racial purity started to come, come up in my immediate spaces rather than just, you know, in a, in sort of external spaces like television or whatever. I came over here when I was 11. Okay. So things started to shift. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, it was, frustrating and upsetting and uh, a lot of the sort of I guess the main story that I would tell myself was about being invisible because that's kind of what what um, I believe in it you know I, I, my observations are that you know people of multiracial backgrounds are sort of um, erased in a way because you 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 kind of end up choosing in inverted commas the 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 racial group that you most resemble um, in order to fit in, which is you know something that's really important to us as as human beings, uh, wanting to belong somewhere. Um, and I think as as young people in particular, when you're going through that particular age, you know you're my age at the time, you know, 11 into my teenage years, I was not just that I'd moved to another country and left all my friends, but, uh, and I think that sort of put a microscope on it, if you like, or it magnified it. But, you know, you're, you're trying to work out where you fit in at that point. Uh, my sister's boys are starting to grow up now, and, and I'm, We've been talking a lot about this sort of transition from childhood into young adult or teenagerhood where you're, you know, you're basically um, the way that you're interacted with and what's expected of you is so radically different from what you've experienced. And there's very little in the way of guidance of how that happens. You know, how do you make that transition? Um, you know, we'd have... In some in some cultures, you'd have like rites of passage or something that would mark that. But in in sort of this kind of Western culture, you just you know people just go, "Ha, huh, you're an adult now. Let's get you. You got right. responsibilities. Let's behave like an adult." And you're kind of being whatever a that kid means. Going, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> sure, sure. So so your experience was magnified. So everyone has that kind of transition, wanting to fit in, and then because of your mixed race heritage. You're just thinking, okay, I've got to fit in with who I look like, but then maybe your feelings don't quite match up to that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's magnified by also the, the transition of moving from Trinidad to England to a completely new society um, and new, new ways of interacting. I also moved into a part of London where I was around and into a school which was 99.9% .9 Sikh. So I wasn't moving into a 
white English middle class neighborhood. I was moving into a basically a part of London where everyone where you sort they sort of dumped the people who were coming in from different countries and they had to kind of work out <laughs> what was going on and at that, that time it was mainly Sikh people um so how would you describe your school experience it was a shock uh, really because I went from conservative catholic um very strict uh, basically, I went to school in a convent, so um, it the was ultimate like, extreme. Yeah, it was <laughs> almost militaristic in a way. Oh my! <laughs> so, um, oh, they actually had people from the the uh, local barracks come and do PE with us. We used to do military drills, so <laughs> it literally so was that absolutely bad. serious. <laughs> yeah. There was there was no room for like joking around or messing about or any of that kind of stuff and um you know we still there was still uh let me get this right corporal punishment um in the school so uh you you know it wasn't unusual to assembly have somebody getting um punished i mean not in an extreme way but i mean mean, physically punished be punished not in a like kind of get the whip out and lash them kind of way but in front of the whole school you're being punished so in the context of it was quite extreme you know quite humiliating yeah i mean we had i I remember one girl getting punished for being caught lying so that's the kind of you know extreme (laughs) extreme convent culture so um and so what did you go into what was the other extreme the other extreme was um a ghettoized uh, uh, school where the teachers had a very sort of tenuous hold on the control of the students. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I when I went to school, when I was in the convent, we'd have to stand up as a teacher entered the class, stand up when they spoke to you, stand up when they left the class. In In the school I was in, none of that happened. Uh, students would swear at the teachers. In one of my classes, a student picked up a chair and threw it at the teacher, and I was just like, holy cow, where am I? What? It's the jungle. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, yeah, it was gangs and drugs and weapons, uh, you know. So it was like you, you couldn't really get more to the other side of the spectrum as far as I was concerned. I mean, there were schools that were worse, but. I was like pretty the, the, the shock, the absolute shock. And was, so think, thinking about um, adversity, right? And you're describing some already. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, already. At 11, 12, 13, you're, you're, you're jumping right into it. Um, what would you say have been your maybe rock bottoms? Where, where has life really taken a turn for you and been quite intense in that sense? Uh, well, the, the ultimate rock bottom for me... And I got, um, yeah, it's difficult. That there's there's so many moments where you can just go, oh, that was that was it. Um, I think really thinking about it, the 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 sort of ultimate rock bottom for me was I'd been already, you know, coming up to maybe fifteen or so years of um, getting being involved in drugs. Um, so I got involved in a very on a very early age, um, introduced to them at a very early age, and um, I suffered with long term depression, 
I'd been struggling with my own sort of gender identity and, um, and I was kind of, I spent sort of up around two years in my ex's front room on a sofa, uh, just did, not doing much more than taking drugs and wishing I was dead. Uh, so that was kind of like the ultimate rock bottom. <laughs> so, so life from that school age really took a, a turn for the worse uh, as you yeah. developed your own identity uh, in all yeah, senses yeah. of the word. I think, um, yeah, I made some, I made some bad choices for myself about what direction I was going in. Um, well, I mean, bad, good, it doesn't really matter, but, um, I, I chose the more difficult road <laughs> when it come to, when it came to like maturing and developing as an adult. Um, I might have explored some more interesting crevices, uh, than other people, but like definitely, um, I mean, looking back now as an adult, I can see that what I was doing with drugs and uh, was self-medicating and trying to cope with uh, the disconnect with my external appearance and my internal identity. Um, so, and there was a lot of pain in that um, and trying to fit in and make it right for the people around me so that I could belong. Um but ultimately, it didn't really matter about whether or not those people accepted me because I was not accepting myself, and I didn't belong where I, you know, in the in the home that is my body, if you like. Um, so, so oh, yeah, interesting putting putting all that effort into looking after the people around you. I think you said in yeah, order yeah. to belong, putting all your energy there. Yeah, well, if I if it's uh, it's kind of it's a very childish way of looking at things, uh, and that's what I mean. It's like I sort of I um I in a way stunted my growth as an adult through my choices to be become involved in drugs, as so I didn't really mature, but also I didn't have the capacity to do that uh, because I was trying to deal with all the other stuff that was going on. And my fund, my guess, my fundamental belief at that point was that if people accepted me and loved me in whatever way that looked in my head, then I would just be okay. And I wouldn't need to, you know, what was going on, the sort of tension that was going on and the, the difficulty that was going on in me was not really about me taking steps to fix anything about that it was really about getting people to like me so that um, you could belong yeah and if i got people to like me and accept me in a way that i thought was would demonstrate that then i would be okay um and sort of a big part of that that journey through was realizing that, <laughs> that nobody could do that for me that i had to do it for myself and, and at then, that stage, sorry, did you did you yeah. talk to anyone? Was there anyone that you you trusted, whether it was um, parent, teacher, friend, anyone who could see a little bit more of this side of you or allow you to experiment with expressing it? No, I mean, no, not really. Um, I mean, you know, that's the short answer. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it was, you know, as with any human life, it's very complicated and multi-layered in in the sense. Uh, so. I didn't. I didn't come from a place that encouraged or taught me how to express myself. My primary role models 
modeled silence over expression. Um, and I was coming from a very conservative society which didn't accept anything outside of a normal heterosexual, um, you know, Christian environment. So it wasn't, it didn't make sense to me, you know, to say stuff like that out loud would be the ultimate uh, rejection. And I even, even through that, I was still rebellious enough, you know, like taking drugs was completely not acceptable um, in, in, in that social group, even though it did happen. Um, being gay, <laughs> no, totally not acceptable. I came out at like 12. <laughs> so it was, um, but for me, those were soft steps because the really big step was, um, expressing my, my gender dysphoria and, and saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not female, you know? Um, and that I did try to do that when I was 15, which is, sort of mid eighties, I guess. I mean, I'm my, basically I remember, yeah, I remember like the beginning of AIDS. So that's like to put it in context, you know, we're just coming right, right, right. the period where, um, you know, people were just waiting for people who had AIDS to die rather than do fear. Yeah. yeah. And what, uh, what was it? Do you remember coming out at 12? Cause that's quite, um, young in that time to, to be, well, what do you mean when you came out? Was that telling your parents? What was the, what telling, was the impact? My, telling my mom, basically. Uh, my mom was the person that I communicated with. She, she is definitely a communicator. Um, so telling her and, um, you know, basically to her be, you know, her message and my family's message, I mean, I've been very lucky is that, you know, we don't care what you are, you know, you're part of the family. Um, That's and, amazing. Yeah. No, I've been very lucky in that. In that. I got chills when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is um, very lucky. They, you know, she's, she's an exceptional person in the sense that she really has no interest in, you know, she's a real model for connection with people. You know, she worked, that's what she's worked out her whole life. Um, bringing, bringing people together, even in the, the, you know, mainly in the context of our family, but, you know, also be put herself through uni while raising three very difficult kids. <laughs> well, very intelligent and challenging kids, I guess is a better way of putting that. But so she did that all on her own. Um, got herself her degree in teaching and then started uh, specializing in teaching kids with dyslexia and she's still doing it you know she's still helping kids and sure amazing woman amazing, yeah amazing amount of knowledge about child development and how and also because of the amount of time she's spent in that that field the the way that developed technological developments especially have affected child development and you know I've, I've only just said goodbye to her yesterday because she's come up for a visit so that's why she's kind of forefront in my head oh, of course of course we've had been having discussions about that lots of connective um, chats yeah so take, so take me back then for for a minute so so you, you you've come out at 12 to your mum. you you we then jumped to your your rock bottom absolutely was not wanting to live yeah. Um, uh, drugs, uh, living on, was it your sister's couch? Somebody's 
now my ex's oh your ex's oh that's even worse <laughs> your ex's couch um and life just doesn't feel worth living tell me a little bit more about that that period in your life yeah well it just um I'd been unemployed for a really long time and um I just didn't see that there was ever going to be a time where I would have a normal life that I was just um you know I just didn't I, I just couldn't cope with this and I'd never get anywhere and I'm always going to be in this mess and there's no way out. And, you know, you know, the whole sort of that dialogue that you get with depressive, um, depressive kind of experience, you know, you're nothing, you're never going to get anywhere. You're worthless. You're, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And also, it's having experienced addiction myself, it's that whole what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Is it the drugs or alcohol that's leading to the depression? Or is it the depression that's leading to the drugs and alcohol in order to cope that kind of dark yeah, cycle? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, but I think there's a, the, the thing with, I, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, and, and I was dealing with a very specific um you know, sort of quite a narrow, I don't know. It's, I think it's quite a narrow, um, thing, but, um, you know, the, the drugs ultimately, they give you kind of room to breathe in a way. Um, but they're not a long-term solution and self, you know, for me, self-medication, because I want to be really careful about this being just about me. This is not in any way about me making generalizations about other people and their usages because that's a different space. And, you know, you can only work out, you can only crawl your own way out of that hole if it's a hole, (laughs) you know. What an image, though. It sounds like it was for you. Yeah, so it felt like that a number of times. My journey out of addiction was... It wasn't just one, you know, oh, I'm out. Yeah, free. <laughs> it was like, yay, I'm out. Oh, no, I'm back there again. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I'm back there again. Oh, okay. No, I'm sick of this. Am I going to do this again? You know, it was over and over again until I just realized that I just didn't want to be there anymore. And I do whatever I could to stay out of there. And so what brought you to that decision? It's, I'm always curious about, you know, at what point or what had to happen or yeah. what was it for you? The two key things happened to me, um, and the first one was lying on that couch wishing I was dead. Ask it, and I finally just asked myself the question: If you were going to die right now, would you would you fight it? Mm. Would you still try to live? If you were like, if your body was shutting down, would you like really still keep trying to breathe? And I was like, yeah, I would, absolutely would. So there was a clear answer. Just like, yeah, I I was just like, yeah, no matter what, no matter how crap life gets, I'm always going to fight for my breath in that moment. So I was like, okay, well, if that's real, and I'm going to take it as real for myself, how do I make my life less shit? (laughs) Where do I go from here? What, what, you know, I got to stop trying to kill myself, basically, because that's what I was ultimately doing. Um, so, you know, the best thing I can do now is just stop trying to believe this fantasy that I want to die and start looking at what does it take to live? Um, and the second one, which I've forgotten while I was telling that story, 
we were saying, you know, what was the point? What made you then begin to shift things or begin yeah. to look so for solutions? That was the beginning of my road into recovery, if you like. And as I said before, I, I was my road to recovery was, oh, I'm free. No, I'm not. Oh, I'm free. No, I'm not. And then I got to a point where I looked back and I realized that I'd spent 20 years being addicted to drugs and taking drugs and pretty much with almost no no periods of sobriety like i didn't know what's how to i didn't even know what sober was like anymore and i and, was and, and it's not just the absence of of substances it's how the fuck do you deal with emotions you yeah, know yeah. without any numbing exactly yeah exactly. right because yeah, they can be overwhelming, right? right? <laughs> it's uh, how do you how do you function as a normal human being, yeah. normal, yeah. Um, <laughs> in the, in a place where you're not running away all the time or uh, trying to make it somebody else's fault or lying about what's going on for you, um, all those you know being honest about where you are and what your experience is, so. Um, and also being honest about the reality, you know, real, it's difficult to even put that into, because there's so many layers to reality, you know, but what is real and what is the stuff my mind has made up to make mm-hmm. it okay for me to behave in a way which isn't appropriate. Sure. Which has uh, an impact on you and others negatively. Exactly. Because even though I may get the things I want, it's still not necessarily good for me. And, you know, Ultimately, you know, part of being an adult is being responsible for yourself, not just for what you do, but the impact of what you do, you know, saying, okay, I did that. And at the time I was completely okay with that action and it had this effect on people. And I'm going to take that into account next time. And at this stage, did you ask for help? Was there help? Were you beginning to be open? Or was uh, it a, a, just an inner solo struggle? A lot of it was internal and solo. I did have um, a time at the beginning of my journey where I went to a, a sort of rehab drop-in place. Um, Rehabish, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind well, of rehabish. It's all I'm ready for. I don't know what that looks like, but um, it didn't. It it was it was basically you come in and they'd give you like ear acupuncture, um, and then you'd sit in a circle with loads of other people who had lots of different types and levels of addiction, and we talk. And I was just like, this is so not for me. I can't deal mm. with this. Um, and then I, so I went a couple of times and then I didn't go back, but it did lead me into, uh, things like acupuncture and Qigong and Tai Chi, which, uh, were practices that I, I got involved in and started to develop and they helped me to, uh, cope as I was dealing with my addiction problems because the the practices themselves are all about, um, stability uh, in your body and um, the stuff that I was learning was all about you know b- building sensitivity and pre- presence in the body um, and being able to uh, uh, sit with your experience without feeling like you have to act from it oh that's deep so it's kind of a mindful activity people talk about mindfulness connecting to your body and changing 
maybe the relationship to your thoughts. So you can notice them, but they don't have to control what you do. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I've never, I've never, well, I don't know. I've done, I've done stuff that I guess other people would call mindfulness, but I don't consider it mindfulness. So it was Tai Chi really that. Tai Chi is a good meditation. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, I mean, as I've practiced more and more, I've become very sort of, I guess, irritated, which I'm working on. Uh, the idea that the mind and the body are separate things, you know, I think, uh, they, they're, they're one piece connected. Yeah. You don't, you don't think and feel as if they are separate things. They're a single experience of a moment in different layers. And so your feeling or the reverse impacts your thoughts. Your thoughts are a cognitive reflection of your experience. That was a really smart line. I like that. <laughs> they're, they're, it's a, well, it's a it's an assessment. You know, you have creating this experience. Meaning. Yeah, it's creating meaning. It's creating narrative, and Story. it's also predicting and judging and trying to work out what your next best step is through that prediction and judgment. So. Um, your experience, your, and that's, I don't know if that's always a feeling either because, you know, what experience is it? Yeah. That's a really good word. Well, yeah. Cause we're talking about the sensory information that's coming to us as opposed to our emotional response to that sensory information. That's a secondary response to the actual experience. So, and, and that secondary response comes with, our narrative about ourselves, our narrative about the world, our narrative about how we should act, all of those stories that we use to navigate this space. So a lot of the practices, again, that, I'm, that I work with are about trying to understand the experience and not judge it so that it's not about the secondary, the secondary judgment stuff comes up, but you don't like make that the thing that you have to do, if that makes sense. So, you know. so, and the biggest impact is that your actions are different. So you may have the impulse to do drugs or to lay on a sofa for another two years, but yeah. you, you now have a different relationship to that and you, and you override it in a way to make a different choice. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I don't, I wouldn't use the word override because I don't want to, it's not about squashing my, response down and making it not important it's having the response observing the response and going okay i had that response some compassion yeah self-compassion is i mean uh, i don't uh, this uh, i'm going to mention people now so um uh, P- pema chodron she's a buddhist uh, meditation teacher and she her teacher she's a she's a quite a senior teacher now she does lots of books and talks and i've only ever heard her on on books i've never met her i'll just say that now now. Um, so yeah i never shook hands with the lady but um so she's she helped me to click a lot of things into place which i had been struggling with uh through my practices for a really long time and the thing that really really put it into perspective for me is this idea of what the her tradition calls my tree, which is self-compassion, 
And she basically is talking about it in the context of meditation. She's like, you know, when you sit and you meditate, your mind does stuff. It thinks about this, it thinks about that. That just happens. And what you need to do in order to progress or to be able to continue your practice is to forgive yourself. You go, oh, yeah, I had that thought. Okay, that's great. And now, and that's okay. And then you go on because you accept the idea that you're not going to be able to, you know, you're compassionate enough to accept that you're a human being and you're not going to have a single line of unbroken presence within your meditation session every time, sure. regardless of where you are in your life and what your experience is, for as long as you demand it. Um, you know, and so this idea of like continuing to forgive yourself over and over again, and I think I don't know if she said it, but definitely heard it from somewhere else where you know regret is self-violence. So I started to wake up to how say that, say, that, say that again. Regret is self self-violence. Is self-violence yeah, self? Yeah, that's so, okay. Intense. Yeah. So I started to really wake up to how cruel and violent I was towards myself and how much of the pain that I was experiencing was coming from me exacting that that continual violence upon myself and realizing like when I tell myself I'm never going to get anywhere I'm going to always be shit people are better than me that is basically me being violent to myself and I wouldn't do it to anybody else so why would I do that to myself. But we ha I mean, we have a culture that encourages it, obviously, it makes it okay, but it's not how I want to be. So, again... But I guess recognizing it also means you now have some power to change it. Um, we have the option to, mm. if, if you choose to do that, absolutely. There's um, choice. It, 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 well, I mean, it, again, it depends on so many things within your human experience because I might not have the capacity to do that. You know, I've, so I as a person have built up decades of this habit of sure. being violent towards myself that even though it's painful, feels safe to me. It's familiar. Uh, and I, I demonstrate that in depreciating humor, sarcasm, all of that sort of stuff. I, I make myself acceptable and belong to the groups of people that I've are important to me by making those kind of making that kind of humor around me, but also masking the fact that I care deeply about those things and they're painful to me. So I get to avoid being vulnerable and risking the fact that other people might connect with that um, by no telling these jokes where people will laugh and I go, and on the surface I'm like, ah, see, I'm acceptable. People like me. Sure. So I might not have the capacity or the courage at that point to step into that space where I'm willing to face rejection as I believe it. Um, it took me a long time to get to that point where I could go, I mean, and, and it depends on who I'm with as well, because there's some people I just want to do that with. Sure, sure, sure. And that's completely okay. So how long well. has it been, sort of, this for this recovery journey for you? I started in earnest, <laughs> I would <laughs> say. <laughs> I, was, I got serious. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. If it, if I, guess, I guess I started when I was uh, probably around 25 or 26, and then it yeah. took me about 10 years yeah. of 
backing and forthing and upping and downing and rounding and rounding and trying to work out what the hell was going on. Um, sure. And so when I hit 35, which is now almost 10 years ago, um, I started to get it. You know, I started to get, that's when I really asked my questions, you know, did I want to, did I want to still be alive and stuff? And I'm, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a death avoider. I've had a lot of exposure to, you know, death and dying and talking about that. And those are, those are some of the subjects that are not scary to me, uh, where I find a lot of people don't like to talk about them, but it's like, for me, the the acknowledgement of death in my life on a daily basis is the, it's the compass, you know, it says, well, what's important here? You haven't got a lot of time. And that's not something to be afraid of. That's something to sharpen the, the blade, if you like, of, of really getting in touch with what is precious to you right now. Where do you want to spend that time um, in order to you know, look back on your life, which will end, and say, I did the best I could and I'm okay with that. And if you do look back, uh, is there anything you would want to change? Um, generally, no. I mean, there's lots of stuff that, I mean, the stuff that I have learned uh, in, the, in the experience of being a human being in struggle is incredible. And I don't, I don't really, I'm still, I'm still getting the grips with the depth of what I've experienced. And that's not just being in the depths of it, but also crawling out of it. And it is a crawl, you know, it's like people like to put this sort of picture up. I mean, I, I try not to look at a lot of television and stuff, but you know, it's like this kind of like, Oh, I was really in the depths of things. And then I suddenly realized I wanted meaning in my life and I was good. Yes. This just doesn't happen. Put a perfect little bow on it. In my experience, this does not happen. This is a small, this is a slow creep and crawl for inches and millimeters of getting your life back after years of habits of taking it away from yourself. And it's okay. You don't need to rush through this journey because the journey itself is rich with gifts, not often gifts that I want. I mean, quite often, most of my journey looks like, no, no, please, <laughs> no, not again. Um, but, you know. And I'm, still- fe- I'm feeling sort of emotional as you say that um, yeah. because I spent so many years in regret, in yeah. anger, and wishing certain things away. Yeah just wishing thinking Mm. that life could have been better you know yeah if I'd had a different hand of cards given to me at the beginning yeah but I appreciate so much what you're saying and part of wanting to do this podcast is because I want people to get that message that even if you're in it there's a gift to being in it and there's such richness of character and I appreciate people like you so much in my life because of that richness um, yeah. And if I, even if I'm like dating or, or meeting new people, I almost want to see where the adversity is. So, so I know I'll relate yeah. and I want them in my life. You know, if yeah. life's been too easy for them, I'm a bit like, oh, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's dimension, isn't it? How do you how do you really exercise 
those qualities that really make us noble human beings, yeah, compassion, kindness, discipline, responsibility, all of these things that really, you know, expand us out beyond this is mine and I want it all for myself. I'm not sharing it with anybody, you know, or, or being able to see someone and have a connection with their suffering, and be it's able so to deep, reach right? out. Yeah, I mean, this is for me. These are the the this is the preciousness of our humanity, and what we keep telling our story, what we keep telling each other, is the story of perfection and superficial all rightness. And yeah, it's nice. Don't get me wrong. We all search for easy and nice. That's what we're programmed to do. But it's the richness of what we are and our lives and how we connect to each other and how we can do that comes through our ability to step through difficulty to the other side. And instead of choosing, and I very clearly want that to be, you know, that is a choice. You can choose to be grasping and isolating, or you can choose to open up and go, okay, life, here I am, and I'm still going to love, and I'm still going to be open to this, and I'm still going to give it everything I have. And it's hard. This is, again, the other part of the story. It's going to be easy. You know, you're doing good if it's easy, but it's not. Life has struggle in it, and that struggle is not always, you know, it, yeah, there's t challenging situations, but also there's like the challenge that we create within ourselves because of those situations. And in my, in some of my darker moments, I think of stories that my teachers have told me about <clears throat> a lot of my stuff, uh, stories I've heard of related to like the um, cultural revolution in China, because the teachers that I've been in contact with, you know, working with people who taught them meditation who had spent 20 years in jail because, you know, they were educated. So being put in prison because of the cultural revolution, being tortured every day, their peers, you know, not being able to survive, killing themselves, dying of despair, all of that sort of stuff. They're using things like meditation and qigong to let go of the blockages or the difficulties that they have in their bodies and survive and come out the other side. Women who've uh, been humiliated and abused through the cultural revolution, not no, you know, in terrible ways, forgiving the people who did that because they've worked through the the stuff within them, which has which they've held on to. to. Yeah, it's you know, the, you hold on to it. You make a story about it being okay for you to be a certain way because. We believe it's safe. It's protecting us. It's not. It's not that we're just like inherently evil. I don't. You know, I could have a conversation for hours about that as well. That's, that's for another podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> another podcast. Um, but like the, you know, letting go of that and choosing how we want to be as human beings. So I've got. I've just some final questions before yeah. we close. Yeah. Um, if your life was a book, yeah. what, what would this chapter right now be called? This chapter. Right uh, now, let's bring us to the present. Sort of waking up. 
<laughs> I, I don't know the next the next chapter is, waking up tell us about that what's in this chapter yeah. well I, i'm waking up a lot to the things that i've been telling myself that have made it okay for me to behave in ways that i'm not okay with um and i'm waking up to what's important to me i'm waking up to how i have made the behavior of other people which is damaging to me okay because I'm afraid of being rejected. Um, and all of those things, you know, I'm just waking up to those things and learning to trust myself uh, and say, okay, this is how I feel about it and that's okay and I can make a decision about that and if they don't like it, that doesn't make me a bad person. It, it doesn't makes make you who you are. Yeah. So it's learning to really, I guess you could even say maybe it's coming home in a way, but it's, I'm just sort of learning to live as me inside me instead of coming home, projecting out to other people and trying to work out what they want and making it okay for them. So they don't leave me. (laughs) So, so, and then you use the word trust, trusting that if you are fully you, the right deeper connections will will come to you, right, or or be drawn to you. Yeah, I mean, I don't know is the is the answer to that. What I know is is that I can connect to myself in a deeper, more meaningful, more loving way, and that is fundamentally changing my experience of life. And that is that is not to be. I mean, often people sell that as a selfish uh, practice. Uh, You know, you take care of yourself and everything good will come to you. Um, You know, all that sort of stuff. Follow your passion is a great example of that. Yeah, I think. Put totally in my judgment here. Sure, sure. Um, But I think, I don't know. My life could be great or not great. Uh, good things can come and maybe bad things will come and I just don't know. What I know is is that I can make my experience of whatever comes um, not okay. It's not about being okay. It's just about being open and allowing myself to fully experience it and choose the lessons and the learning from it as best I can. Um, as a human being, because and so mm, sorry, it like, and again, I have arguments with people about this all the time. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter because when I die, outside of maybe a very small number of people, <laughs> who's going to remember me? Who's going to even know me? Yeah, this life is only for me. My experience of this life. Um, and so this is my lesson, my teaching that comes to me from life. If you, if I have to hum- anthropomorphize life, and that's not said very well, sure. you know, it's my teacher, right? So either I become a good student and live my life in the way that I believe is um, the best way I can live it, or I can, you know, be a bad student and blame my teacher for being shit. Sure, sure, sure. 
Okay. And so finally, we've got to come to a close yeah. just for the sake of time. Um, I love this journey so much. I knew you were the right person to interview. <laughs> I'm like in tears. I'm laughing. It's all, it's all happening here for me because I resonate so much with your story. And I know other people will too. Um, if you... And I know this is about your learning, but you're coming with so richness, so much mm. richness from decades of, of struggle and mm. uh, learning how to be compassionate for yourself. Yeah. If there is somebody listening who is in the deepest, darkest bits of the struggle right now, mm. and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to focus this, what's the one piece of advice that you would give them in order to set them on the path of learning? Gosh, that's such a big question. And he doesn't want one answer. All right, two. Okay. Um, a summary of advice. If, so, if you just imagine that that person is on, is on their sofa, is, is in that darkest place that you were, what would you say to them? Hold on tightly to what is precious to you. Really, really find that thing that is precious to you and hold on tightly to it. Um, and then focus on your wins every day. You know, when on my, in my deepest, darkest places, my win was I'm alive. I made it through the day. I may have made it through the day on my sofa stoned out of my mind, but I still made it through the day alive. So I was like, you win, you won today. You're doing good. So it's like you're cultivating a practice of encouragement and connecting to what's precious to you. And I think beyond that, um, there isn't really much else you can do if you're really that, <laughs> that far down. <laughs> I don't know. But, but yeah. what you're saying is that that's the starting point to cultivate, cultivate a mindset or a practice of looking at, at the wins instead yeah. of, because I know what the opposite yeah, feels I like. Mean, you may not even be able to look, you may not be able to step back far enough to see it's cultivating a practice. But, you know, just to be able to pat yourself on the back at the end of the day and go, you made it, instead of going, oh, for Christ's sake, why did you spend another day on the sofa, stoned out of your mind again, you loser? You know? Right. It's, we're, which, we're, is, which starts the, viol- the self-violence that you talked about. Well, that is, that is self-violence right there. So, you know, even though you may not know it, you're carving out a new pathway for yourself that is, you're doing okay. You're going to be okay. And I, I guess, and I'm going to have to put a third piece in there. All right, okay. all right, all right. I final final I piece, Oscar. <laughs> Everything changes. If you're in a shit place today, it's not going to be the same place tomorrow. It may still be a shit place, but it's going to be different. Every second, every minute is different from the moment you're in right now. If you can just make it through the moment, that's a win too. To the next moment. And so it's that, that kind of, you know, just gently shuffling along, taking the millimeters as you can, the, the centimeters as you can, the inches as you can, whatever size that, that, that movement is, because it's not really a win or a loss, it's just movement, you know. Keep moving. Just keep trying to do the best you can. Love that. And, and I would just add to that, that when we begin to be open about our story, it loses some of its power. 
So yeah. whether it's asking for help or, or telling someone that you're struggling, it's, it's, you can now release some of the shame attached to it and begin to get the help that might be useful as well. Absolutely. I mean, that is, for me, from that point, would be not possible at that point. <clears throat> I wouldn't have been able to do that. I, I was just, yeah. I, I, for me, being able to talk about my adversity and share that with other people in an honest way, it, 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 I couldn't do that at that stage. I was, I was locked in silence. Um, so it's a, it was a decade later, a few stages yeah. down. You have to work with whatever space you have and just count, try and get that space to open up in whatever for what. In, in whatever way it can without sort of forcing it open there's you know and so for some people that won't happen um just find the thing that does work that keeps you focused on you know being more alive instead of being more dead i love that oscar Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your story. Oh. I appreciate it so much. Um, oh. I'm sure everyone will agree that we wish you all the best in everything oh. in the future. And I know you're, you're just here for your learning, but the impact you can have on the world just looks profound. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm here for my learning and to share that. I'd like to share, I like to share that journey. I mean, anybody who knows me knows that they can't have a superficial conversation with me for more than five minutes. So, that's why, uh, you that's why you're in my life, Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that. I, I think it's, yeah, I just like really love it. And I think, you know, if, um, if I can share that with other people and they can see how they can love that too, then that's, that's a precious thing. And, and worthy of a life and on that amazing point we will end thank you so much oscar ah, my pleasure thank you thank you thank you so much for listening if something helped you today please do share this episode with a friend and let them know that they are not alone i know that for me isolation kept me stuck much longer than i needed to be so let's practice courage and talk to someone about what's going on as that's the first step to making life amazing Check out my website, petravelsboer.com, for your free Kickstarter plan, which will teach you to turn your biggest weaknesses into your greatest strengths. Join the community of people who are changing the way they view life's challenges and living life to the full. Until next time, goodbye.